Amen. Well, it's great to uh, have each of you here with us this morning. We have the blessing of seeing some folks that we haven't seen for a long time. I have to remember on Sundays when I'm going to preach that I shouldn't sing with all my might because I, one time I literally lost my voice and I'm like, oh God, bring back my voice. <laughs> so it is, uh, it's just a joy to be together and to uh, open God's word. So this morning I want to direct your attention to the gospel of Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> gospel of Mark chapter 8. We, in our sermon today, we're going to cross from the first portion of the gospel of Mark that deals with crowds and multitudes and the book's going to make a, a unique and distinct shift. It's going to shift from the miracles and teaching of Jesus to the disciples and the work of Jesus. Okay, so you're going to have a shift from the public ministry to more private focused ministry that begins to unpack with increasing clarity the value and work of the cross of Christ. Here's a question I'm going to ask you this morning. How do most of us <clears throat> respond to suffering? When someone's suffering, what is your first inclination? You get on your knees and go to God. What's your first inclination? God, take it away. Right? Because we tend to have cultivated a rather negative view of the topic of suffering. We tend to think that suffering is bad. So we tend to run from it, flee it, and seek deliverance rather than the progress that God in that suffering often intends. Now, I, I try to exercise a little bit, uh, try to go to the gym, and uh, I actually have to make that as a public announcement. <laughs> Otherwise, it goes unnoticed, okay? Uh, but, you know, at the gym, it's pretty much uh, no pain, no gain, right? <clears throat> So the other day I was doing my thing with my weights and I, there was a guy beside me and he was, he was sizable. He was, he was working really hard, uh, and looked, you know, like probably when I was 30, I probably looked, God, that's how I want to look. It never happened. Okay. <laughs> but I heard as he's doing his workout, I hear grunts and groans and pain. And at, like that, it hit me. That's why that guy looks that way. Because he's been willing to welcome pain in order to experience a level of gain. Okay, the same thing is true in relationship to dieting. I've been trying. I, I've crossed lines recently that I've never crossed before. And I, I love food. And to not eat food causes me pain. Okay. I used to come home from school and say to my mom, I'm starving. Like, she was like, like you think you're going to die? Well, no, but I'm, that my need for food is, is great. Okay? The only way I can experience progress in an area that I feel like I need to experience progress is I have to be willing to suffer or give up something in order to experience that progress. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not, I'm not real hopeful. Okay, I just, my makeup is, it, it just cries out. James 1.12 cautions us in this way. Count it joy when you experience various kinds of trials. And the aim of that text goes to the fact that the difficult times produce the best things in your life. 
And in this text, Jesus is going to have a discussion with his disciples. It's going to be a little bit of a give and take discussion about the identity of Jesus, about the suffering of the disciples and the suffering of Christ. So we're going to work through two snapshots. One is, who do they say I am? One is the mountain of transfiguration. Sandwiched in between them is a call to the disciples to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, which is probably some of the most familiar territory in the Gospels, right? It's, it's painfully familiar to us. But when you put it in the context of Christ's suffering, because in both sections, Jesus is going to say it is necessary, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And in the midst of those revelations of himself, he talks to us. And he calls us to a life of suffering as a life of gain. Okay, and so I'm going to try to add some clarity. That's a, just a simple overview. So let's go to the first snapshot. And it deals with the question that Jesus asked in Mark, Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Remember, Herod said that. Because of the miracles Jesus was doing, Herod thought that John that he had put to death had come back to life and was now revealing himself in the person of Jesus. Others say Elijah. Why? Because of the miracles that Jesus was doing. Others say one of the prophets. So there is a, 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 a mixed response in terms of who do people say that I am out on the street. To the crowd, Jesus is a notable figure like John the Baptist, like Elijah, like Moses, like the prophets. They all find Jesus quite interesting but not necessarily compelling and life-changing. Jesus then focuses this question intensely on the disciples themselves. He says, disciples, but what about you? So the crowd has their opinions, but you've been close, you've been watching, you've been listening. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, the word Messiah is an interesting word. It literally means an anointed one. If you're familiar with, you know, kind of Old Testament times, kind of ancient history, pre-time of Christ, there were kings. Kings were always put into the office with the anointing of oil. That was just protocol for the acknowledgement of the next rightful ruler. Happens throughout the Old Testament, happens throughout the ancient world. So when you read the word anointed one, you can literally put in the place of it a king. Okay, so as the disciples observe Christ, Peter gives a summary of their opinion, you are the Messiah. Now, The word Messiah, anointed one, draws on Old Testament themes about one who would come and bring deliverance for Israel. He would be a freedom fighter and a freedom giver. He would break the chains of oppression. 
He would set people politically free and bring peace. And so that was a strong hope. Peter certainly had heard this teaching sitting on the knee of his mother. As you'll remember when Peter was called, he is called Simon the Zealot. Meaning he was one who participated in an attempt at insurrection of the Roman government, which was onerous, difficult, and ugly. And as they banded together, he finally comes alongside of someone named Jesus, and he identifies him as a king, and he's hoping that Jesus can do the things that he wants to see him do. Verse 31 then says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, here, here's the interesting connection. Messiah is the term anointed one, could be used very broadly. The title Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and can only be applied to deity. Because it talks about a kingdom and a throne that will never end. It talks about the ancient of days. So Jesus says, yes, a king, but not like the one you expected, Peter. But instead, the son of man, which is not a human title. It's used in Daniel as a divine title for Jesus. It is meant to expose the deity and limitlessness of Jesus. It is a divine a divine title of one whose kingdom will never end. A kingdom that ends in justice. And this is, for us, hopeful truth. So this is what Jesus says in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And there is when Jesus inserts the Stone in the shoe of the disciples. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Rejected simply means tested and cast off. Okay, and you remember Christ goes through times of trial. And in those trials, he is rejected and cast off. Ultimately counted amongst sinners. Rejected by the, the, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, here's what I want you to see in what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man must suffer, and that's going to come up at the end of the chapters, or at the, when we get into the Mount of Transfiguration. The divine necessity of the suffering of the Messiah will again be pointed out. So, what is Jesus saying? Yes, I am a king, but I am not the king you expected. I am a king who suffers. Rejection and suffering in this context then, Jesus clearly claims as divine necessity. He is not saying that suffering and sacrifice and loss is a possibility. He is saying that it is essential and necessary. Son of man victorious, yes. That's how the disciples would respond. That would be Peter's response. A suffering Messiah? No way. That would be, that would be unacceptable and deeply troubling to Peter. That's why when Peter responds to this saying of Jesus, his response is one of strong rebuke. He finds it inexplicable. 
Because you would never in the Old Testament closely associate the coming king with death and suffering. Although if you go back to Isaiah 53, from the eyes of Jesus, guess what you begin to see? You begin to see that indeed the Messiah does suffer, does go to the cross willfully to bear the cost of our sin and set us free. So Peter finds it inexplicable. And the question is, why? The reason is because Peter is a zealot, as I described earlier. He was raised hearing of a coming king who would defeat injustice. And when he saw Jesus with miraculous capacities, he was all in. But when Jesus started to talk about a Messiah who suffers, he wants to jump out. Okay, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Jesus, however, had not come to take power but to give it up, to surrender himself. He had not come to rule. He had come to serve. He is one who defeats evil by the cross and brings justice by bearing the consequence of my rebellion. And Peter could, that's the part of Christ that Peter is struggling to get his arms around. Well, Jesus has a very clear response to Peter. Verse 32, it says, he spoke plainly about this, that is Peter. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and tells him how things really need to be. All right, it's humorous, it's presumptuous, it's typical for you and I. Jesus, hearing Peter, turns and looks at the disciples as a whole and at Peter, and he issues this strong, stinging rebuke. Verse 33, Jesus turned, looked at the disciples and rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. The word rebuke is the same word that you will find every time Jesus addresses the demonic realm in the miracles of chapters one through eight. Every time when it says he rebuked them. It's the same word that he uses with Peter here. Why? Is he saying that Peter is demonically possessed? Is he saying that Peter is, a, is, is, is an instrument, a tool of the evil one? No. He wants Peter and the disciples to understand that they are articulating a mission that is contrary to the purpose of the first coming of the Messiah. And so what he says to them is he says, watch how he says it. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. That's strong. Why? Because Peter is parroting the desires of the evil one. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you are fixed on the temporal realm. You want temporal relief, as I asked you at the beginning. How do you respond to suffering? Well, I want it gone. When the attitude of a believer should be, God, if you intend to work good through this in my life, let it stay. Purify and cleanse my life through it. Peter, your mind is fixed on temporal things. And, and my mind thought of this. In the context, bread, healing, freedom, right? Those are things that Jesus was doing on a regular basis that Peter and the disciples had seen and that they loved. Peter thought that Jesus could be very useful to those, his plans for a kingdom. And so when Jesus turns a different direction... Peter will have none of it. 
And Jesus says, Peter, you're fixed on temporal things, not on the divine, eternal purpose, our forgiveness, saving, and true justice. Jesus did not come to die. Listen to this. Jesus had to die. There was a divine necessity that the justice of God would only be satisfied by the sacrifice of a perfect substitute in his son, Jesus Christ who had come willingly to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is a truth that will continue to grow in clarity as we work through the gospel. Jesus is saying, Peter, your life and the world around you cannot be renewed apart from the cross. True lasting change, true forgiveness, true redemption, true transformation cannot happen apart from the cross. So what is the struggle? They cannot see how suffering is good and how it is saving. So they respond like Tim Hoff would respond. They reject the concept of Christ's suffering. Folks, can I say this in the midst of a difficult time in our country? Political victory, stability, and relative peace is not our greatest need. But we often talk about it like it is. Here's been my rebuke. I have found myself talking much more about political issues recently than I do about the cross of Christ. That's a serious problem because it tells me where I tend to place my hope. Jesus in this text tells us where we place our hope irregardless of what is happening in the temporal realm. So he says, Peter, you're thinking only exclusively about temporal things. And I want to get your eye on eternal things. So what does this Christ following that Jesus calls his disciples to, what does it look like? Verses 34 to 38. Now give a teaching that flows out of a discussion about the suffering of Jesus. Okay, so it's instruction to the disciples. And I'm going to summarize it by saying this. It it focuses on the importance of cost counting in our Christ following. Okay, the importance of cost counting in our Christ following. Now, Jesus is going to describe the disciples now what it means to following a Savior who of divine necessity must suffer many things. Okay, what does it look like? to surrender my life, to yield to a complete and full following of Jesus. What are the steps that I need to take to get there? So verse 34, he called the crowd to him along with the disciples. So they have their discussion, sidebar. Now they come back into a teaching session. He called the crowd along with his disciples. Why does he call the disciples aside? They're the leaders of the future church. If anybody needs to understand the truth of the gospel, it's them. So he pulls them aside, gives them very specific, hard teaching that the crowd's not ready for, but that the leaders must know, right? And then he gives them teaching. Then he calls the crowd along with the disciples, and here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple, and disciple literally means an adherent or a follower, okay? One to whom you have pledged some level or degree of loyalty, okay? So... He he called the crowd along with the disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple, he says, must deny themselves 
and take up their cross and follow me. So if you're going to follow me, he says, you must. So there is not only for Jesus divine necessity, there's for each one of us divine necessity. And the divine necessity for us is laid out in three simple steps. Notice what it says. It says you must deny yourself, which is simply to say goodbye to oneself, to jettison one's personal agenda, and to confront the idolatry of self-centeredness that is so prevalent in our hearts. Okay? My capacity to care about myself is, is intense. Okay? It is strong. For Peter, it was strong. The context helps us to understand what denying yourself might look like here. Why is Peter upset with Jesus? Why does he respond so strongly? Here's why. Peter has an agenda. Peter has personal desires. And he wants to force them on Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't comply, what happens? Peter gets angry. He gets in Jesus' face. He expresses himself with deep conviction and emotion because he sees Jesus as a means to his ends. And when Jesus won't play the games that Peter wants to play, Peter is rejecting Christ. A savior who suffers is untenable for Peter. But the truth is this. If Jesus is the son of man and Messiah, he cannot be a means to Peter's ends or mine. So if I'm going to walk in the way of Jesus, I must take my personal agenda and put it aside and adopt his agenda and live it to the fullest. Jesus then says he must deny himself and take up his cross, divine necessity. For Jesus, this cross His cross would mean full surrender, total sacrifice, and a humiliating, ignominious death. It would mean complete stripping, total rejection. That's what the cross meant with great struggle. Jesus modeled this take up the cross attitude in the garden. You'll remember in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is facing the cross the next day. And he says to his father, father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Let the cross go by. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And in that modeling of Christ, we see a very powerful, a very powerful call to take up the cross and follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him be freed from his selfish concerns, from his personal agendas, so that he can then surrender to the agenda of Christ. If you have found it difficult to follow Christ, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is this. Have I put aside my personal desires and agenda in this life? So that I can have Christ's agenda as my true life purpose. And then Jesus concludes in the third step by saying, then follow me. The first two are choices. They're definitive steps. The last one is a habit of life. Okay, that's the way the the verbiage in the original 
uh, is described. Two steps precede a habit of life. Now, I want to say this. What is it that drives our sacrifice and following? What, what compels us to do that for Jesus? One writer put it this way. He said, we, we sacrifice and follow Christ, not because it is demanded, but out of love for a king who chose a cross for our benefit. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to his disciples in John, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Folks, we don't follow Christ because he tells us to follow him. We follow him because he loves us. And his love compels us. Paul said his love constrains me. It binds me to the task that he's called me to. Because I am understanding that he is indeed the king of kings, the glorious Messiah, the son of man. But he is also the one who shed his blood on Calvary's cross for my saving. So folks, if you merely look at Christ as an authority figure, rather than an authority figure, the king of kings, who is your savior, who dies on the cross, your following of Christ may not be being motivated by the stronger power or influence. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And when you understand that Jesus is a king who went to the cross out of divine necessity, a divine plan, a divine intent to have you as his child, when you begin to understand that, that will begin to free you from your personal agenda. That will begin to free you from your fear of loss and temporary sacrifice. Because you know that he's got your back. He's got all your bases covered. I cannot follow Jesus rightly until all other allegiances have been severed or subordinated to Jesus. I can't be the man that God wants me to be in my home if I don't love Jesus more than my wife. And I always say to young people, hey, what do you think of so-and-so, this, this guy I'm dating, this girl I'm dating? My question is always this, do they love Jesus more than they love you? Because when you find that, you will find your greatest relational treasure in life. To be devoted and committed and wed to someone who loves Christ more than you. Because when they love Christ more than you, they love Christ more than you because they understand that he is not only a glorious king who sits on a throne, but a beautiful savior who hangs on a cross. And when you find that, understanding of Christ, which is what the disciples needed to get here. Yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, I am going to a cross of divine necessity for your saving. And you understand that he is the final authority and he is overwhelmingly loving. You have the best king on earth. You see, folks, we live in a democracy and we think because we live in America and we're 4% of the world's population that we have the best form of government in the world. And we're wrong. Because the best form of government in the world, and please understand how I say this, is a loving dictator. When I say dictator, you're all like, oh, no way. Well, if you have someone who is completely authoritative and at the same time completely loving and selfless, what more could you possibly want? You see... 
And when you have that kind of a king who is benevolent and all-powerful, you realize that the only response I can give is, I surrender all. Not because I have to, but because I must. And there's a difference. There's a difference between the flowers that you buy for your wife for Valentine's Day and the ones that you bring home on July 13th. One is out of duty. One is out of affection. I'm not saying the other one can't be, okay? But the thing that you do because of them, not because of any special day, is what marks the difference. Same thing is true with Christ. He deserves my absolute allegiance, but he won my absolute allegiance through the cross. And he looks and he says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then you can follow me because you understand. I went through this battle personally. I had an agenda for my life when I was 20 years old. I had a stable family business. I knew everybody in town. I had a great opportunity in front of me, but it was not the call of God for my life. And I, I wrestled with that for three years until one day I saw that my wrestling to stay where I was and not go where God wanted to be, wanted me to be was absolute rebellion at its best. It was my declaration of independence from the king who loves me. And the day that I saw he was the king who loved me is the day that my life changed. His call was not changing me. His love transformed me. And that's what Jesus is explaining to the disciples. Now, since the call of Christ is categoric, difficult, requires sacrifice, what do I need? I need a motivation to do it. So what Jesus does in the next four or five verses is he gives disciples rationale for why they should deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Verse 35 begins with the word for. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So that that sacrifice is in honor of Christ and an acknowledgement of the gospel that is saving truth that changes my life. It flows in response to that. It's done for Christ, the king who dies. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will, and the gospel will save it. What good is it? For someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul. Or what will anyone give in exchange for their soul? So in those three verses, Jesus develops or builds a strong rationale for why believers should say, it's yours. It's yours. And why hanging on to my life, my agenda, my pleasures, my desires is foolish and ultimately selfish. What Jesus says in verse 35 is there is gain and there is loss. There is a wise way to live and there is a foolish way to live. True gain, Jesus says, is found in sacrifice for Christ. It's found in full surrender to Jesus. And I would argue that this is how we follow the command of Christ that says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do I do that? I do that by full surrender, by full sacrifice. Verse 36, there is the temporal and there is the eternal. There are things that last and things that don't, things that matter and things that never 
will in an ultimate way. And Jesus is challenging the disciples to think about this. What good is it, verse 36 says, for someone to gain the whole world and yet at the end lose their soul? My response is this. We rebel for much less. There is no chance that anyone will ever have the whole world. No one will ever possess all that. Jesus gives a hypothetical. If someone did, but they forfeit their soul, they're foolish. Then you work from the greater to the lesser. I have a whole lot smaller sphere of influence to give up. The idea of world here refers to two things. World refers to social influence. Things like career, accomplishments, respect via family legacy. And and the, the things that give you position socially vary from culture to culture, but it's part of what this world is. Secondly, it is the prizes of business. It is personal possessions. It's who I am and what I have. That's what Jesus is targeting here. What is the benefit to get all of that and die? To get it all together and leave it all behind. We find much smaller portions of the whole world attractive. A confession for me. I think it was Friday night. I was, I was trying to watch something on TV. I don't know if I was looking for a basketball game, football game. And I stumbled across a, a channel that basically goes through the homes of actors and actresses and basically puts their affluence on display. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm down for that, right? Go Will Smith's house, right? And they show you all the, just absolutely amazing. The rock, all through his car collection, everything. And it hit me. I find that attractive. I noticed that they don't show the average house of middle-class America. They show what we desire. And in that, I saw my own wrestling. I saw my own desire, my own weakness, my own respect for or applause for things that are temporal in value. Jesus says, if you overvalue those temporal things, you lose. But if you sacrifice much for Christ, you win and gain. Verse 36, Jesus says this. Or verse 37. What can someone give in exchange for his soul? What is of equal value to your life? Okay, this is, this, this is a, a question that should stop you in your tracks. What temporal possession would you give your life to get? And hopefully you're thinking to yourself, nothing. Nothing. There's an old Abbott and Costello uh, little scene. Someone comes up to the guy and says, your money or your life. And the guy says, give me a second, I'm thinking about it. Okay, here's the truth. I know that the attraction of temporal things is foolish. And I know the attraction to temporal things. I know it personally. Jesus' question is, what will you give in exchange for your soul? 
And her answer should be nothing. But what will I give in contrast to serve Christ? The answer should be everything. I would make total and complete sacrifices to, to have his love and to know him as my Savior and Lord. Jesus in verse 38 then says this. This is, this is one of those cold texts that just kind of stands you up. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Which is to say what? The suffering of Christ is followed by a glorious exaltation. Therefore, what else is true? The sacrifices and suffering of his people are followed by a glorious revelation in the future. You see, Jesus is not calling us to a road that he himself did not travel. He's calling us us to a road that he himself did travel. Folks, here's the truth. What you believe about Jesus matters. Temporal choices concerning the call of Christ to your life have eternal consequence. And in this text, Jesus is not merely implying, he's clearly saying that to reject me is to suffer eternal loss in hell separated from God. That's strong. It means that you can live the absolute life, life of opulence and, 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 and riches and, and plentifulness and die and spend eternity separated from God. That is a strong rebuke. The thing that we ought to treasure is what this verse says. The Son of Man is coming after his suffering in glory and in victory for his own. And that truth, a loving Savior who dies and then one day comes to take us to himself is powerful. Can I ask you to do something for me real quickly? In your mind, contrast Jesus' teaching to the message of what many call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says this, and if you want to see where to see it, most of what you see on TV fits this paradigm. It is the promise that financial blessing... And physical well-being are always the will of God for them. And that faith, positive speech, and giving will increase one's material wealth. That's the prosperity gospel as per my telephone. Okay? Here's what I want to ask you. Can you read this text? Cost counting, Christ following. And in any way, see plausibility to a false gospel like that? So I think the answer is a resounding no. I hope that as you listen and as you read books, that you are discerning, that you are asking yourself, does what I'm listening to, does what I'm watching, does what I'm reading in any way reflect the full teaching of Jesus? Which is that gain follows loss. And that true health and prosperity follow suffering. That's the path that Christ has called us to. The sequence for Christ's followers is gain and glory follows suffering. The path to true gain is sacrifice. One writer put it this way as he summarized this portion of this text. He said the challenge is to hold on to the future promises of Christ to get through the present difficulty in your life. Does that make sense? Hold on to what's coming. 
to have the blessing of Christ's presence in your life, in your suffering. Paul's calculus comes out in Romans 8, 18. He says, if we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. For I consider that the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will follow. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Paul is plagiarizing Jesus there. The sufferings of this age pale in comparison to the glory that's coming. And it is that glory that Jesus Christ himself promises. As I I studied this text, I also thought of Bob Dietrich. I thought of a man who died a winner because he knew that to live is Christ and that to die is gain. And now what he knew, he knows in absolute clarity, no regrets. The last portion I want to look at is chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And I'm just going to do this quickly for you. So now we come to the second snapshot of Christ. So the first one, who do they say I am? Here's who I am, a suffering Savior. The next one takes us to this snapshot on the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus' glory follows his suffering. That's the the thrust. And the aim of this text is to, to encourage hope in the followers of Christ in their seasons of suffering, to, to allow us to shift our gaze to Christ and to all that he holds for us. Verse two says this. I'll read verse one just so you have it. It says, and he said to them, truly some of you who are standing here will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. Six days later, verse two, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So Jesus gives the disciples a promise that some of them will see his glory. Many think that the mountain of transfiguration is a partial fulfillment of that. Certainly the book of Acts is a bigger fulfillment of it. When you find the spirit of God coming in power, proclamation of the gospel and the beginning of the building of the church of Christ. Okay, and so, so God's glory is being manifested through the mountain of transfiguration experience, but also through the growing ministry of the early church. So it starts with a flash, and then it moves into a movement called the body of Christ in the book of Acts. The text says he was transfigured before them. The word literally means metamorphosis, which essentially is what happens to a caterpillar, goes into a cocoon, and out pops a butterfly. Okay, A metamorphosis simply is what's inside is exposed outside for all to see. So when... The disciples are in this experience. There is this emanating, the veil of Christ's flesh is pulled back in some way. We don't know exactly how, but in some way the veil of Christ's flesh is pulled back and his true identity veiled in flesh is fully and transparently exposed. Later, John, who was one of the three taken up here, will say in John 1, 14, he'll say, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John will reflect on this moment and proclaim it in the Gospel of John as one of the reasons why he is so devoted to a selfless, cross-carrying, Christ-following. 
Okay, so it's, it's part of his rationale for why he is a follower and believer in Jesus. Probably the most interesting observation of this text is that Jesus is not reflecting, all right, verse four says, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. Moses in the Old Testament reflected the glory of God. For Christ, the glory of God emanates from him. Okay, and there's a substantial difference because it talks about the nature and character of Christ who deserves our full devotion and allegiance. He is in dazzling white. It is God in flesh in a powerful way. The response of Peter is powerful, verses five and six. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us build three shelters. The word literally is tabernacles, tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So the idea is that Peter kind of disconnects from cognitive speech. He's just, he's overcome. And that is exactly what Christ wants to do to Peter. He wants to render him speechless in the presence of his glory so that he will fully surrender. When he finally gets something out, he's like, hey, let's, let's build three tents. This is a beautiful moment. But what he doesn't understand clearly yet, because all this is coming to clarity, is that Jesus is above the prophets like Moses and Elijah. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll learn two things about Moses and Elijah. They both suffered and they both had prominent failures. The purpose of this event is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Elijah and Moses anticipated and pointed to in flesh. So what happens? Here's what the text says. After Peter blurts out his idea, let's make them all equal, a cloud appeared and covered them. Very similar to what happens on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament in Exodus. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, suddenly they looked around. They no longer saw anyone except Jesus. In Jesus, the word became flesh and God dwelt among us. He came like us in human flesh. He came to be despised and rejected among men, to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He is indeed our only king and savior. And he is the rightful focal point of the church and of our lives. It's, it's, it's powerful when you work through this text and see this burgeoning picture of Jesus that is going to grow in clarity as we move through the rest of the book. But here we just get this, this very distinct picture that Christ is exalted above all valuable and respectable people. He is unique and he is distinct. And he is the one as God who suffers in our place on Calvary's cross and wins our affection, wins our sacrifice, wins our love. Through the life of Jesus, and, and 11 to 13, let me just read this real quick, or verse 9. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves. I mean, they didn't say anything, but they kept wondering what rising from the dead meant. Here's what rising from the dead means. 
it means you died and are awaiting resurrection. And the disciples know that that's what resurrection is. But they're wrestling with how a crucified savior can be a glorious king. The answer is the resurrection. And through his death, he bears the price for our sin. Through his resurrection, he is declared as the exalted king that all should follow. So through this text, what do we learn? We learned that in Christ, glory and gain follow loss and suffering. So the challenge for all of us is to take up our cross today and follow Christ. Our hope in our suffering is Jesus. Don't allow your struggle with temporal political circumstances like what we're living in today. Don't allow that struggle to eclipse this truth. Don't lose your hope in Christ because you're staring. You have your eyes fixed on the temporal realm. Be careful. Be careful. Don't build your hope on human leaders. The story of the Old Testament is that human leaders come and go and fail and frustrate and ultimately die. But Jesus is a king who lives forever. So I want to encourage you in our current circumstance, no matter which side you're on, in the midst of all of the turmoil that is kind of covering our country like a dark blanket, don't look at people. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look at him. The aim of this text is that the disciples would see an increasingly clear and robust picture of Christ. So when the world trembles and suffering and struggle are present, we are not torn apart by it. We don't talk more about that than we do about Christ. May God help us to to get that right. The other lesson is our saving and gain is ultimately found in his suffering, which is a divine necessity. That Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, but by his wounds, his suffering, we are healed. So is suffering good? Well, I think as you read this text, the answer is resounding and affirmative. The suffering of Christ is good because by his wounds we are healed. Therefore, the suffering of his children is good. Because through our suffering, people get a greater and clearer view of our Savior. And so may God help us not to crave temporal things may he free us to love Jesus and to know that no matter what happens no matter what we lose no matter what we gain the greatest treasure in life is Christ whom to know the Bible says is life eternal maybe today something is holding you back from trusting Christ you've heard the gospel you've listened And you're wondering, what do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. You need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have one simple confession. I am a rebel. I am a sinner. And you are a glorious Savior. Of divine necessity, you stood in my place on the cross. You bore the judgment of God that I deserve. And you promised to forgive me if I come to you in repentance and faith. 
And today, I would encourage you, if you sense that God is drawing in your heart, to go to him in the quietness of your seat in your heart and say, God, save me, forgive me, rescue me, give me hope, and use me as I surrender my life, reborn to you. In our, in our communion table today, we will remember two divine realities, two divine must, two divine certainties. The Son of Man must suffer. Jesus said it twice in this text because he wants his disciples to know that the way of Christ is a way of suffering. And as we receive the elements, when they come to you today, you'll have uh, a cup with bread and on top of it a cup with juice. We would encourage you, if you've trusted Christ, take the communion elements and then we will share in taking them together as a means of celebrating and remembering that through his loss, these elements symbolize my greatest gain comes. And as we, as we partake of the elements, Jesus said this to us. He said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Think of my life. Think of my sacrifice. Think of my glory. And in the midst of your present struggle, hang on to the future glory so that your perspective will change and you realize I don't need a perfect world to love God and serve God. I need a heart that is filled with his love exposed through these elements because that will change my life, change my perspective, and change my purpose in life. May God help us. Father, I pray that as we partake of the elements this morning, that you would be beautifully glorified. Lord, we haven't had opportunity to do this often since we've been gathering, so it is a joy for us to hold in our hands this morning symbols of suffering, of loss, and of greatest gain. So fill us today, God with the desire to be everything that you have called us to be, to be willing to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow you. How we need, Lord, your strength to do these things. We pray for these blessings and your blessing over this communion celebration in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.